So glad to see you the, this new year, and uh, looking forward to a good kickoff and a, and a great year. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you grab hold of them, whether they be iPhone or tablet or a leather belt. I want you to hold them up today as a way of saying, hey, this is what's going to guide us in 2018. Would you hold them up and just say the word amen? amen. We're so glad that you got them, glad that you're here today. Would you open them up to Luke chapter 20 as we get back into the Jesus series today? Luke chapter 20, the, the title of the uh, series that we'll begin for the next three weeks is called simply Afterlife, Afterlife. Jesus at this point of Luke chapter 20, and you'll see the same thing in the latter part of Matthew, the latter part of Mark, Jesus is on his way to the cross. And as he moves towards the cross, he's preparing everyone for his death, his burial, his resurrection, but he's also beginning to point out what's going to happen when he returns, when Christ returns after he ascends to be with the Father. So he begins to go into several narratives that have to do with the reality of his return today. Next week, the resurrection life, what that looks like when we are with him forever in eternity, what heaven looks like, what life there will be. And then finally, the signs of his return in the uh, 22nd chapter before we get into a series of those last few actions before he goes to the cross and uh, is crucified and buried and risen again. By Easter, we will conclude the, book, uh, uh, conclude the book of Luke at the resurrection text of Luke chapter 24. So stay with us over these next few months as we walk through this last season of Jesus' earthly life together. Let's stand together as we read the passage today. The parable that he gives us is the parable of the vine growers. And I want you to know a parable has one primary point in the Scripture but in these latter parables that Jesus gives in the latter part of Luke and Mark and Matthew, there is an apocalyptic sense to them. In other words, he's dealing not only with an immediate point of the parable, but also an ultimate point of the parable. I believe you'll see this as we walk through Luke chapter 20. Beginning in verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted the vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine grower so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. There's a progression here that you see with each new servant. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, the answer. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, these are the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and all those around that were listening to this. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. In other words, they realized that Jesus is pointing something out about them. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but upon whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Father, today I pray that your wisdom and your insight and the power of your Holy Spirit will illuminate this text, shine light on our hearts and our minds, and where we stand in relation 
to the cornerstone, to Jesus. And today, as we think about the reality of his return, help us to know whether we're prepared for that and how to be ready. And then beyond that, what will it be like when we are, when we are with you in the, ever, in the afterlife? Father, I pray all these things you'll illuminate in our hearts and minds today in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. These are significant conversations that we're about to get into. And by that, I mean, these are last words of Jesus. If a man is on his way to the cross, if he's going to die for the sins of mankind, everything he says is going to be important. Now, that's always true of Jesus. That's why we have copies of the Bible with red letter editions, the words of Jesus in red, so that we can be reminded that these are powerful and important words. But if there's a way to to accentuate or emphasize that even more, we do that even more as we move towards those last days of Jesus on the earth. In fact, the Passion Week, what we call the last week in the life of Jesus on earth before the cross, is where we're at in Luke chapter 20. It's probably Tuesday of Passion Week. And just a few days, he's going to die on the cross, and he's got words to say, not only to the Jews that are in the area, but also to all those that are now his disciples, his followers. He's going to say some things that are not only immediately important, but ultimately important. As we know, a parable has one main point, and we're going to emphasize that one main point. But this parable is a bit different in that it also sends a message of the numerous attempts that God has made to reach out to his people and how they've ultimately responded to him. And finally, with the final attempt that he's made to reach out to them and their response. And so what happens as a result of that? In this passage, in this parable, are words about judgment, words about the patience of God and the restraint of God, but also the unleashing of the judgment and the justice of God at the same time. These words are important not only for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, but also for those that are skeptics, those that have not embraced Jesus because everything rises and falls on this cornerstone that we sang about a moment ago. But this passage concludes with this announcement that Jesus makes, I am the cornerstone. So I want you to know some things as we walk through this at a 30,000 uh, foot view as we look over the entirety of creation and all that God is doing, we have this parable to point out some things that God have always been true about God, that he's always asked of us, that he's always looking for. So the parable really spans more than just a few months in the life of someone that's there on that moment. It spans the whole history of God's work with us. That's why we call it a 30,000 foot view of everything. Next week, we'll get into heaven. That's a very close view of heaven and the afterlife, but right now, the signs of his coming and right now, the reality of his coming. I want you to know some things about how God works in this parable. And I want you to know some things about your life you need to be aware of. First of all, I want you to notice his requirements. The requirements of God or the requirements of the owner of the vineyard are revealed in this parable. For example, if you go down in verse 10, if you see the way this is unfolded, in verse 9, a man planted the vineyard and rented it out. So this is a very common thing that happens in this era because it's an agricultural culture. And they made their living off the fields. So surrounding Jerusalem, where Jesus spoke these words, are fertile fields everywhere. And all of them know that the vineyard is owned by someone. It's planted by them and then rented out or given out for those to cultivate it and bring the fruit out and ultimately to be able to give the owner what is due to him. 
So that's verse 9 that sets it all up. A man planted the vineyard. But in verse 10, it says at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers. And here's the key that's repeated three times. So that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyards. You see that in verse 10. You see it in verse 11. He says the same thing. In verse 12, after sending the third servant, the same thing. So imagine being there in front of Jesus on this day, Tuesday of Passion Week, probably. He's headed to the cross, and all around him are people that oppose him as well as a few who follow him. And he says, look around you. The way you live is by those fields that are planted. Someone planted those fields. Someone put the seed in the ground. Someone is growing that and bringing forth fruit. But ultimately, someone owns those fields. His requirement as the God of all is that he's looking for fruit. That's a very important concept for us to have, an important concept for those in that day. When Jesus told the parables, for example, of the wheat and the tares, he made this explanation take place in the parable of the wheat and the tares where everything grows up. Some is true wheat, some is false wheat or tares. He said in the end, in the judgment, let it all be cut down and we'll sort it out then. But in that parable, he says, the field is the world. And in the same sense, this parable helps us understand Jesus is telling a story about us, about humans who are to either follow him or who are not following him. The field is the world. The seeds have been sown in their lives. And what kind of fruit is coming out and will that fruit be ready for the owner, God himself, when he comes back? I grew up in Oklahoma and Oklahoma has a lot of agriculture. I remember my dad and mom taking me different places in the cars. We drove down those two-lane highways years ago. And there would be a lot of fruit stands and vegetable stands. You know what that looks like, where a farmer that owns a field has grown the crops, and they just bring them out to the highway. And they have these little pavilions. And you can just stop and buy all kinds of uh, fruit or all kinds of vegetables, green beans and, and tomatoes or corn uh, or fruit stands where you find apples and different kinds of fruits that are there and always just being able to stop. You stop and look over those fields and you see the fields where the seeds planted. You see the crops that are still out there. You see the farmer has brought them in. And the same kind of picture is facing these people who are listening to Jesus talk as he shares this. You're in my field. I've planted vineyards. I expect a harvest. Let me just tell you that one of the most important meanings you can bring out of this parable today is the expectation that God has for fruit in the lives of those he's planted seeds in. Every single one of you that have come to faith in Jesus Christ have had the seeds of the gospel planted in your life. And as a result of that, there is a Father, there is a God who expects at his return a harvest. That's not an unreasonable thing. The Bible says that we've been given the imperishable seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And when we embrace Christ, there is an expectation of fruit to come out of our lives. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is John chapter 15. And maybe one of those passages where I memorize more verses than any other is in John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to John 15 for a moment. Because there Jesus talks about the same kind of expectation that God has for our lives once he's planted seeds in our lives. In John 15, verse four, for example, he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless 
you abide in me. In other words, there's an expectation of fruit coming out of your life when you abide with Christ, when you're part of that branch that is grafted into the vine. Or John chapter 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's an expectation, there is a requirement that God has on all those who are followers of Jesus Christ to bear spiritual fruit. And then there's another requirement, an expectation in John 15, and that is in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, in other words, more fruit, and that your fruit, your spiritual fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Let me just say this to you today, and I hope it gets your attention. No true Christian is without fruit. Every true born-again believer in Jesus Christ should be bearing spiritual fruit and more fruit. And this parable of the vine grower his expectation, his requirement is very, very clear. Now, for the most part, this parable points out those that have no interest at all in bearing spiritual fruit, but among them that day were those who did have an interest in following Jesus, who had an interest in bearing spiritual fruit. I want to talk about that for just a moment because this is one of the best ways that we can prepare for the inevitable return of Jesus Christ, for the inevitable Evitable fact of the afterlife, the fact that we are bearing fruit. So let me just say two things to you. First of all, we are to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. Just make note of that. We are to produce spiritual fruit. And the spiritual fruit we are to produce is after the seed that's been planted in us. In other words, since Jesus planted the seeds of the gospel in your life, the kind of fruit that ought to be coming out of your life is Christ-likeness, love and joy and Peace is the way it's described in Galatians chapter 5 and many other characteristics. But the Christ-likeness, the love of the Father, the love of the Word of God, the love for other people, the desire to have pure character and pure mind and pure heart, that kind of spiritual fruit that can only come from knowing Jesus and following Jesus and patterning our life after Jesus Christ. That's a supernatural thing, but you have to cooperate in that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is speaking. He said, I planted the seeds of the gospel. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God gave the increase. A supernatural thing that happens in every person's life, no matter what your personality is, no matter what your strengths or weaknesses are, no matter what that is, when the seeds of the gospel are planted into your life, there's a supernatural change that has to take place in your life. You're an old creation that becomes a new creation in Jesus Christ, brand new spiritual fruit after the likeness of Jesus Christ should be taking place in every Christian's life. And if you do not have spiritual fruit in your life, something is wrong with you. Now, we don't like to hear that, do we? I don't like to hear someone say, something's wrong with you. You ever had somebody say that to you? Man, something's wrong with you. But if you've got spiritual seed which is the gospel. If you've got a God who gives the increase, if any kind of spiritual watering has happened at all, only your resistance keeps you from having spiritual fruit. We've got to own that. That one day, the vine owner will come back, the vineyard owner will come, and he'll say, where's my fruit? One day, Christ will come back, and there's an expectation with all that he's invested in your life to have spiritual fruit. Let me tell you, over the years, I've noticed some reasons that people don't have new spiritual fruit. I've noticed some reasons that people are stuck 
and who they always have been. And they haven't grown any. They haven't changed any. They haven't become more filled with character. They haven't become more pure-minded. They haven't uh, been more compassionate. They haven't done the things Christ has called them to do. Here's some reasons why I believe it happens. There's a group of people that believe once they know everything they need to know about the Bible, that's all God expects of them. The Bible says this, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. It doesn't matter how much you know, if you're not becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you don't know what you know in the right way. It doesn't matter how deep your Bible knowledge is if you're not changing into the image of Christ and producing that kind of spiritual fruit, then your knowledge is amiss. You know it for fact's sake instead of for transformation's sake. The Bible, the Word of God, is designed to transform our lives into the image of Jesus Christ. And one day his requirement will be, how much like my son are you? So I've noticed there are people who say, well, I know enough, and that ought to be enough. Then there are those that say, well, I'm good enough. I've eliminated enough of the bad stuff out of my life that I can still have a little bit of leeway to be me to do what I want to do, to act like I want to act. I've, I've refrained from some of the really horrible stuff. I've gotten that out of my life. But I've got enough room to have plenty of secret sin that nobody knows about. I'm good enough. I want you to know, while nobody else sees your inner life and your inner thoughts, God knows all about your inner thoughts and your inner life. He wants you to become like Jesus through and through. There are some that say, I know enough. There are some that say, I'm good enough. There are some that say, I don't care. All I wanted was to be free from hell and separation and the burning that hell involves. I just wanted spiritual life insurance. That's not how the Bible works, and that's not how the king works. When he comes by, he's looking for the reality of a faith that says, I do care about becoming more like Christ. I do care about spiritual fruit. So his requirement is we are to produce spiritual fruit. I want to ask you today as we think about this parable, are you producing spiritual fruit? Do you see a difference in who you are this year versus who you were last year? I don't mean two weeks ago. I mean a year ago. Are you seeing progress? Are you seeing growth? Are you seeing God work in your life in supernatural ways? Are you seeing seed that is producing in in your heart and in your life? You are the field. And when he returns, he wants to see the fruit. But we're also to produce new fruit. That's the second aspect of John chapter 15. I want you to go and bear more fruit, but that your fruit should remain. What's Jesus mean? He means that we are to continue to grow spiritually, but we're also to transplant this new growth into others' lives. That means we spread the gospel. It means we tell others about what a difference Jesus Christ has made in us. We are to produce new fruit. We are to increase the kingdom. We are to help people that have never heard about Jesus learn about the Jesus Christ that changed us and saved our life. There's an expectation from the vineyard owner that we have expanded what he has given us to us to other people. That's why we want to grow. That's why the church wants to reach out to people. That's why we witness. That's why we share about our faith. That's why we focus on a person and begin to pray for them and invite them to be in our services, to invite them to have significant gospel conversations because 
our vineyard owner is coming back and there's a requirement he has on his life. And I don't want you to look at this as a legalistic requirement. This is not just about doing something. It's about a life we're called to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should be joyful for us to leave behind old characteristics in order to become more like Christ. It should be joyful for us to have conversations with people to help them know there is a king that's coming back and you want to be ready for him and you can be by knowing Christ. Are you with me this morning? You need to be bearing spiritual fruit. You need to be bearing new fruit that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, these that day that were listening to him, the Jews and the Pharisees, were not. There's something else unique about this parable that presses in on my heart in a huge way, and that is his restraint. It's remarkable how God restrains himself. Look at verse 13. This vineyard owner in the parable exercises incredible compassion and incredible patience and restraint. So he sends three servants to get the fruit in the story, and they reject all three of them, increasingly hostile. They're getting mad about the fact that the vineyard owner is saying, um, that's my vineyard. They're upset about the fact that he says, I planted those vines, and they're going to be able to be benefited by the fruit, but I'm expecting also Fruit to come back to me. I'm the owner of the vineyard. But then what's really hard to grasp is verse 13. He says, the owner of the vineyard said, and this is Jesus, acting out this dialogue in this parable, he asked himself, what shall I do? Well, let me just pause for just a moment after that question, Mark. What would you do? You've sent three servants to get the rightful fruit that you believe belongs to you. And all three of those servants have been rejected in various ways, increasingly hostile towards them. What shall I do? Well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, in the story of the parable, says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, I've got to tell you, as I walked through this text this week, I thought, this makes no sense to me at all. If I send three of my sons, by the way, I have three sons. If I, if I sent three sons, I would not send a fourth one. If I sent three servants and they didn't respond, well, I would not send one of my sons. I believe what I would do is I would gather the largest army I could find and I would come in and take over the property again. Now, these that were listening that day understood what was happening. We're going to see how they respond in just a moment. I have sent prophet after prophet after prophet to you. I have foretold the existence of a Messiah. I have pointed the error of your ways and the promise that I would fulfill if you would just follow me. Over and over, I've sent prophets and messengers to you and every single one of them I've re you have rejected that I have sent to you. Here, I'm going to do an ultimate act of compassion and patience. I'm going to send you my son. If that's not a clear argument for the patience and the long-suffering and compassion of God, I don't know what is. Because we wouldn't do that. But God, in fact, has done that. The one telling the parable is the son. Jesus is the son that came after all of the prophets were rejected. God's character is on display right here. You can't read this text without thinking about John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can't read this without thinking about Ephesians chapter 2 where the first three verses decry the depravity of mankind. But in verse 4, this amazing verse that says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. You can't read this parable without thinking about the incredible restraint that God exercises and the incredible grace he lavishes on us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, also give us freely all things? The compassion of God, the restraint of God, the patience of God is in this text. And in contrast to the response of the people, it's amazingly clear. Look at what they're going to do. Verse 14, but when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Wow. Notice in this response, it's not the son they're talking about, but the heir. These vineyard growers say, we're gonna take whoever he sends to us, who will be the heir, and we're going to get rid of him. Because by killing the heir, the land will be ours. We won't have to deal with the vineyard owner anymore. We won't have to deal with whoever he sends us anymore. It will be ours. Life will be ours. Our conduct will be ours. The fruit that comes out of our lives will be ours. We will not have to answer to anyone at all. I want you to look around you today, not, not so much in the room, but in the world in which you live, at the behavior of people who have no room for a vendored owner and no room for a son. You know what's happening? All around you is the rejection just as Jesus prophesied. Not only of those there in that parable who were in opposition to Jesus in that day and time, but in culture in general today, a perfect picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Dark and dead. I've noticed things about people who absolutely reject the idea of a son coming in one way or another. Some people would ignore Jesus. They act as though he never came. They act as though he never lived a perfect life, as though he never died on the cross. They completely ignore the reality of the existence of a son who has come by the insistence of a vineyard owner or God himself. I've noticed there are others who simply reject Jesus. They know he came, but they're not going to make room in their life for Jesus Christ at all. They're going to live life the way they want to live him, barely a step above those who ignore him completely. There are those who reject him. I've also noticed there are those who recreate him. Be, be careful that you're alert to the fact that some people recreate Jesus in their own image. They say, well, Jesus never said this, or Jesus never said that, and what they're doing is they're trying to recreate this Jesus to give approval to their lifestyle and approval to their selfish way and sinful way of living. They recreate Jesus because they don't want the conviction that comes from a Jesus that has purity and moral truth and absolute revelation. Then there are those that oppose Jesus, those that outright oppose him. They want to get rid of him. They want to remove him from the picture. And that was the picture Jesus is painting about the Jews right then and there. And yet the restraint of God somehow 
continues on. His patience continues. His patience continues waiting. Can I say something about the patience of God to you today and the restraint of God? It's amazing to me that he keeps waiting. The Bible says about the days of Noah, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. This is the passion of God, the compassion and the patience and the restraint of God. He keeps waiting. If you began to read about the second coming of Christ, you know that there's going to be a moment where he takes the church out. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, it speaks of that as the, remover of the, the removal of the restrainer. The restraining impact of the Holy Spirit exercised through the life of the church will be removed one day and the world will have whatever is left. All the fruit of their sin, all the fruit of their rebellion, pitting one person against another, all that will go undeterred. But until then, the patience of God continues. Let me just say something to you today about the patience of God. The patience of God is at work in your life. The things that we have sometimes crossed the line on and continued over, somehow the restraint of God's judgment and the restraint of God's wrath has been held back so that you might continue to have opportunity to turn to him. The patience of God has been exercised in my life. I can't tell you the number of times where I've come back to God after having walked away from him and said, God, thank you, thank you for giving me time to repent. But the reality is God calls us acknowledge his lordship over our hearts, over our lives, over the field that we've been placed in. His patience lingers, but not forever. Because this parable, the story Jesus is telling, the vineyard owner comes back. His return. We've looked at his restraint, and before that we looked at his requirement. But let's look at his return. The Bible says in verse 16, and this is how we know this is apocalyptic as well as ultimate. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. That's for a simple parable. We would maybe believe that he was saying he's coming back and destroying all the Jews, which he obviously did not do. But the idea is there's an immediate judgment, but there's also an ultimate one. And the ultimate one is what this is speaking of, his return. Many of us know about the floods in Houston in recent months, and we watched that unfold. Quite a, quite a spectacle. One of the stories behind the story of the floods in Houston had to do with the spillways or the reservoirs. An article I read recently said one of the two major flood control reservoirs in the Houston area was actually triggered to begin spilling over for the first time in history despite the efforts to prevent such uncontrolled overflow the day before. The rains continued to come. The waters began to be built up. And they had to let those reservoirs loose with the water. They had to open the gates so that they would eventually flood downtown Houston. But if they had not done that, a wider area would have been flooded. And the reason that got my attention, because I am very aware of this. God has no limit on his patience. But at some point, God will determine enough is enough. And that's when he comes back. I don't know when that day will be. I thought about sending out that I was going to announce the date this morning that Jesus Christ would come back and I knew I would have a full auditorium on that morning. But I also knew I wouldn't have a date to give you or certainly wouldn't be wise to have given you one. But God has set a limit on his patience. We just don't know when it is. But we know we're closer now than we ever have been before. He's coming back. 
And there's a huge flood of judgment held back by his restraint until he decides enough is enough. He did this in Genesis in the flood. When he said enough is enough, he put Noah into a mission of building the ark, put him in the ark, shut the door, and then the floods came and all were destroyed. He allowed his judgment to break forth against Sodom and Gomorrah, and he rained fire and brimstone on that city after he said enough is enough because of their immorality and their rejection of him as God. God has a way of saying at the right time, enough is enough, and judgment and justice and wrath and reward is coming. I wrote this down in my notes as a way of encouragement for me. A day is coming. Do you believe that? I want you to say that to somebody next to you. A day is coming. Say that to them. A day is coming. And the Bible says in this parable, in other places of the scripture, there will be two things we can expect. There will be punishment. In verse 16, the Bible says he will come and destroy. It speaks apocalyptically to those who disregard the owner and the son. And there Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. He makes Psalm 118, verse 22, come to life. And that's that literally what he quotes in this parable in verse 17. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Referring to the fact that everyone will be judged on the basis of their relationship with the cornerstone, who is the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. I know sometimes in our world we are accused of being too exclusive in our religion. And sometimes as Christians we are accused of being too exclusive because after all, many people believe there are many ways to God. But it's not the people who follow Christ who came up with the idea of Jesus being the only way. It is God himself that said that. It's Jesus that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus that said, Psalm 118 is being fulfilled. I am the chief cornerstone. Whoever does not believe will be crushed by this stone. It's not the church that says it. Uh, we just echo it. Jesus himself said, I am the way. And that's why there's judgment for those that reject this cornerstone when all has been provided for them to come to faith. Jesus says, if you reject me, there is destruction because the only way is through Jesus. But there will also be reward for those who accept Jesus. I want you to be encouraged in this room today. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, destruction is not for you. Wrath is not for you. You know what you've been destined for? The love of God, the compassion of God, the fellowship of God. You've been destined to be with him forever and forever. Somebody needs to say amen about this point. It's a good time to do it. If you're ever going to say amen, now's the time. He's coming back. He's coming back for you. There will be a reward. Heaven itself is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. But all the spiritual fruit and all the new fruit that you bring to him will be rewarded in heaven in such a way where you can cast those crowns at his feet and glorify him and worship him and be with him forever and ever and ever. An amazing promise that we'll see more of next week. There will be punishment. There will be reward because he will come. When you think about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming, what does it do to you? Years ago when I was thinking about the return of Christ in a very vivid way, then it provoked an emotion inside of me. Some of us today, when we think about Christ 
imminent return, feel fear. We're afraid for one of two reasons. One might be we're afraid because we've never established a relationship with him by putting our faith and trust in him. And because we know there's no way that we're going to be with him forever and ever. We've never trusted what he did on the cross. We've never allowed him to forgive us of our sin and give us the gift of eternal life. We've never made that decision. We may know it intellectually, but we've never embraced him as Lord and Savior. And you should be afraid because we don't know how long we'll live. We don't know how long he'll hold back his wrath until he comes. There's another group of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, but we're afraid because we won't have any fruit. There's a little bit of concern that Jesus may come back soon before we, quote, get our act together. By, by all means, please don't hear me say that you have to get your act together on your own. God plants that seed in your life. He waters that seed. He gives the increase. The only factor here that's bad is that you sometimes resist him. And you're not quite ready for him to come back because you've been resisting too long. You've kept him from bringing that spiritual fruit or that new fruit in your life. And then there are some, when they hear Christ is coming back, are filled with joy because they say, I can't wait for him to come back. I've been following him. I've been obeying him. I've been living for him. I can't wait for him to come back. And I don't know which of those three you are, but all three of those are legitimate expressions of someone that's grip, gra grappling with the reality of his return. I want you to bow your head for just a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to analyze how you think when I say Christ is coming back. Our prayer counselors are coming to the front in just a moment. As I conclude this service, I'm going to encourage you to come and talk to one of them. And I want you, if you have fear in your heart, concern in your heart about the return of Christ, I want you to have a conversation with one of them. Because they're prepared to talk to you about your spiritual life, whether you are a true believer of Jesus Christ. They're prepared to talk to you about whether you're prepared for his return. And I want you to know today, you can walk out of here thinking about the return of Christ with no fear or concern at all, only joy. And I want that for you. There are others who might come to them and say, you know, I need to be prepared. I need to begin bearing spiritual fruit. What a great week to think about this. The first week of a new year where you think about what you really want to be and who you really want to live for this year, my admonition, my encouragement to you is to live for the Lord who placed you on this planet. Live for his son who died on the cross for you. And today maybe you need to stop resisting and start allowing. There are others of you that have abject joy, absolute joy when you think about the return of Christ. I celebrate with you. Would you stand with me over these next few moments? And as you stand, I'm going to pray. At the conclusion of our prayer, I'm going to encourage you to make a walk just across the room. Talk to somebody standing at the front about how you think when you hear that Christ is returning soon. Let them pray with you. Let them encourage you. Maybe you're one of those that is ready yourself, but there's someone close to you. You love them. And they're not ready. And you're concerned about their life. Come pray. Name that name before the Lord that the Lord would use you to help them know Christ. This is such an important thing for us. Will you bow with me as we pray? Father, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for the reality of your return. 
that of all the things that we count on in life, nothing can really be trusted except your words. And you say, you're coming back. And we believe that. And Father, we want to build our life on something sure, something certain, something solid. And so, Father, today we want to build our lives on you, the solid rock. Today, help us to make decisions that will allow us to live the way you called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.